Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We talk a lot on this show about immigration and the need to make America a more welcoming place. But what is it actually like to grow up in this country as an undocumented immigrant? Xi'an Julie Wang did grow up that way in America, and her memoir, Beautiful Country, traces her journey from childhood to adulthood, trying to find her place in the nation she calls home. She joins us today to discuss that journey. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In so much of our discussion and attention to immigration in this country, immigrants themselves are often reduced to pretty crude stereotypes. They're cast as bad actors, people who want something they haven't earned, who won't respect the laws of our nation, and who maybe want to take things from people who are born here in order to get them for themselves. A big part of why that's true, of course, is because we don't really get to hear a lot from immigrants themselves, particularly those who are undocumented, about what their lives are like, what their journey to this country entails. They often live among a smaller group of people, only those they can trust, only people with whom they can truly share their stories. And it's quite infrequent that they've literally written down the narratives that include their moments of vulnerability, moments baked with fear and shame and the unknown. Undocumented immigrants often live as outcasts, often literally and metaphorically, in the shadows of our culture. Xi'an Julie Wang is someone who has written about her experience with a lot of detail and openness. As someone who was an undocumented immigrant from China to the U.S., her new memoir is called Beautiful Country, and in it she explores transition, identity, and what it's like to be a child trying to understand social boundaries when everything is so unfamiliar and you're told that there are so few people you can trust. She and Julie's story is also really unusual and interesting in the sense that she has had so much success in our country. Once really poor, she's now a prominent attorney and author, and has been grappling with what the American dream is and what it should be. I'm really pleased to have she and Julie Wong with us today to discuss all of this on Detroit Today. Uh, she and Julie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Delighted to be here. So before we get to your story here in America, talk about what life was like for you 
in China and what per people's perspectives were in that country of the United States. You come here as a fairly young child, but you were old enough, I think, to, to, to remember what was before. For me as a child, my memories of China are of joy and warmth, of being surrounded by my loved ones and my family members. But I also remember my father in particular coming home from work, um, strained, exhausted. He was a professor of literature. He had also grown up in a dissident household and his whole family had been persecuted by something because of something that his brother had written. Um, and he also had come from a long line of dissident writers. So there were many days when my father would come back frustrated at what he was not allowed to teach his students through literature and politics and looking at society with clear eyes. Um, and over time, it became so dire what he was trying to teach in the classroom and, and the censorship that was leveled at teachers and professors that um, my parents decided that he should leave. And my father was gone for two years in America while my mother and I remained in China. And those years were marked by a sense of sadness and, and uh, loneliness that I had never known. Um, of course, that changed even further once my mother and I joined my father in Brooklyn. And talk about that journey. Uh, what brings you uh, to the country as an undocumented uh, immigrant, and what do you find here when when you get here? So my mother and I arrived on visitor visas. Um, my parents knew nobody in the country, in the continent. Very quickly, we um, lost our visa status and flipped into undocumented status. And um, in China, before we left, People had very different conceptions of what America might be. Some thought the streets would be paved with gold. There would be plentiful food everywhere. And others thought that it would be full of violence and crime and poverty. And what I found very quickly as a young child was that both versions existed in some form. Um, at the same time that I could look up in the sky and see the Brooklyn Bridge and the sparkling skyscrapers, I was also looking around me in Chinatown and in Brooklyn and seeing people who were hungry, just like me. I, I went to school hungry. Every day we had about $20 of um, food for a week for the three of us. My mother and I worked in a sweatshop. My mother was also a professor. She had been on the forefront of developing computer science technology. And to see my accomplished mother sitting next to me at the sweatshop snipping thread and attaching labels for cents per article of clothing, it completely changed my entire worldview. I had never been aware of hunger. I had never been aware of documents. I was only seven years old. And here I was realizing that there was a world of people who lived, lived very differently from the privileged life I had come to know in China. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if you were aware at that point, at that age, of the, the sacrifice that your parents were making and, and had made in order to get to this country. You talk about, um, you know, your mom working in a sweatshop when when she'd been uh, a professor back in 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 China and was it was it evident to you that they were 
sacrificing for something better that that uh, that being in America was the right choice for not just them but but also for you and that these hardships uh, were just kind of a I guess a necessary part of of the bargain and not in such clear terms I was um, very unclear as to why we had chosen this version of life mm -hmm. and Times I had said, why don't we just go back? I don't understand why we're here. I miss my dolls. I miss my grandparents. I miss my uncles. And my father would often say, I know the day-to-day -day is hard right now, but here we have freedom. And here you can one day be whatever you want to be. There will be no limits on that. And it would take me many decades to unravel the meaning of those sentences and really grapple with the gravity of what he had faced and the choice that he made for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you describe much of this early time in America as essentially being in the shadows, that, that uh, there was a lot of mistrust and secrecy uh, that, that surrounded your life. Can you, can you talk about what that was like uh, in Brooklyn? Being undocumented means that there is a secret at the center of your life that you must guard at all costs. No, no one must ever know about it. And by virtue of that, you can't ever let anyone get too close because if they got too close and saw, you know, that you were living in a tenement style home with, shared with many other immigrants, if they saw that you know, your mother was crying at night and you went to school hungry, they might start to question what's going on. Why are you living in these circumstances, especially with such educated parents? And for me, it instilled this deep sense of shame, right? Some, some truth at my core was not to be known by anyone, lest I be deported. And there was a sense that I was almost subhuman or lesser because of our status. And because of this, it caused uh, me to hold people at arm's length, even you know, longer past that status. Because once that shame is baked into your core, and I think a lot of us can remember a time in our childhood when we learned to keep our first secret about ourselves, and then quickly realized that there was something to be ashamed of, something to hide about ourselves. That stays with us long into adulthood. And so from early on, I just learned to keep friends at arm's length. And once you lie about one thing, what's the difference between lying about another thing? And maybe if I lie about more things, this one thing that I have to lie about is less burdensome. It's less shameful. And so I just concocted these versions of myself. And there was only one space where I was safe to be my full self. And that was in the sanctity of that one room that I shared with my parents. And then through you know, I couldn't tell my friends the truth, but I could open up a library book and whisper to the babysitter's club that I was undocumented and that was safe. And so there were little circles that I carved out where I could be honest, but in the bulk of my day, in the bulk of my life, I had to maintain lies. And over time, it became part of who I was. Yeah. You, you mentioned there the babysitter's club and uh, other stories that that you found in the library, which I think is a a wonderful part of of your tale, because I think 
so many of us uh, find the world in in the public library when we're kids. Uh, we we grow up in one place or in one space, and these stories take us to to all of these other really great places that uh, that maybe we'll grow up to visit or or experience, or maybe we won't. Maybe they're just fantasy. But but talk a little about what you found in the library and and how you found it. My goodness, I remember just feeling like this lost child wandering, wandering through the desert because my whole family was on the other side of the world and I had no idea when I would ever see them again. And I uncovered um, this local library, Chatham Square Library on East Broadway in Chinatown, just a block away from my elementary school. The first time I went in, it felt like the whole world opened up before me. Here were all of these books that I could read and borrow and enjoy all for free. I, I had never known of such a thing. Um, and here were all the lands and types of Americans that I had yet to meet. You know, I, I saw on TV that um, most of America was suburbs and people drove cars and they had big green lawns and white picket fences. I didn't ha see that in um, very urban Brooklyn and Manhattan. And so by opening up the Babysitter's Club or Sweet Valley High, I was able to learn, oh, this is what it's like to be an American kid in this part of the country. And most of all, um, I faced this intense need to learn English, learn to speak English as perfectly as possible, not only because of the persistent stereotype that um, all Asians are new immigrants and therefore cannot speak English, but also because so long as I did not speak English perfectly, I would be marked out as a new immigrant and that might draw suspicion about my immigration status. Mm. So by throwing myself into these books, working my way up to Clifford the Big Red Dog, um, Hungry Caterpillar through Amelia Bedelia, and then finally Hatchet and Charlotte's Web and Babysitter's <laughs> Club and Where the Red Fern Grows that had me crying for weeks. Um, I was able to feel like I could sound like and talk like a real American. And that gave me a sense of belonging and community that I really longed for, but it also gave me the sense of, of safety that I could camouflage into America and not risk deportation for me and my parents. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Xi'an Julie Wang, uh, an attorney and author whose memoir is Beautiful Country. It is about what it's like to come to America, to be undocumented, to grow up uh, in America and, and become a success despite that background, uh, the things that she experienced, the things that her family experienced uh, as immigrants to this country. Um, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Are you an immigrant to this country? Uh, what has your experience been like? What have been your struggles or your successes? And what does the American dream actually mean to you? We talk about immigration and immigration reform as policy matters all the time on this show. We don't talk as frequently about the people at the center of those policy imperatives, immigrants them themselves, especially undocumented 
immigrants who often, of course, uh, are fearful about talking about their experience and what they have gone through. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. And as I said, we want to hear all kinds of stories of immigration, both uh, those that are maybe sad or tragic, uh, but also those that are really successful. Of course, uh, Southeast Michigan is uh, kind of uh, a huge melting pot of immigrants from all over uh, the world. It's one of the things that makes uh, this, this region so culturally rich and interesting. We want to hear some of those stories uh, during this conversation. Um, she and Julie, I want to talk now about um, what happens um, when your mom falls ill here. Um, it, it's, it seems to me that when you have, as you, as you say, a secret at the center of your life, um, uh, every day is just about kind of hanging on, hanging on to that secret, hanging on to your status to, to, to be able to exist in this country. And then if something else happens, if something else piles onto that, it's exponentially uh, more disruptive than it would be for, for families who are not facing that, that first challenge. So, so talk about um, the way in which uh, your mom's illness affected your family and uh, how it affected uh, your father as he had to to, to go forward from that moment, uh, still, still leading your family in this country. Yeah, we, um, of course did not have any health insurance or access to medical care. Um, by virtue of being undocumented, your, your job almost every day is to stay invisible, lest figures of authorities spot you and figure out what's going on. And so when my mother first became sick, we were quite unsure as to what to do. And we found some what we called underground doctors who themselves were undocumented, but had been doctors in their countries of origin. And this was kind of a safety network for um, patients to receive medical care and for the doctors to be able to continue to practice despite the barriers of immigration policy. Um, but of course, those doctors didn't have formal offices. They didn't have machines. They didn't have the support network that would often help you diagnose quickly and well. And um, for this reason, my mother's illness kind of dragged on and we weren't actually sure as to what was wrong. We thought she just had a stomach ache, but it got progressively worse until she couldn't walk. And eventually um, I came home to find her just rolling around in bed and telling me to call 911, which of course was the number we were never to call. Mm. Um, the cops should come come to our our home but the fact that she was telling me this told me as a young child that something was very very wrong and uh, she was taken to the hospital she had to undergo go surgery for um she had a severe gall gallbladder stones that um, ended up encroaching on her liver so it was an extensive surgery that she had to wait for particularly because we didn't have money or insurance and the toll of even just going to the hospital to visit her every day, mm. my father wore that on his face. He wore it on his shoulders. So again, you know, he grew up a dissident child. His brother had been thrown into prison. He saw his parents 
beaten and chastised and publicly humiliated every day of his childhood. And this threat of walking into the hospital and seeing police officers all around the lobby, seeing officials, you know, investigating matters, because often in the hospitals there were victims of crimes and, and having to walk past that, knowing that he was an inch away from being caught and returned to the land where he was persecuted or mm. being persecuted here was a, a triggering of a deep trauma that I did not appreciate or understand until much later in my life. And, you know, in the course of undocumented life of living this reality, I saw him start to shrink into this shadow of a person that I knew he was so joyful. The version of my father that I knew um, was joyful and hilarious and full of life. And over the time of our years here, I saw him shrink in and just become more and more invisible as he was commanded to do. And so this toll weighed on my father as he continued to work and try to support me and take care of my mother. And um, it really brought both of my parents, I think, to the psychological precipice, this breaking point of how much longer can we endure this? And is the long-term gain really that worthwhile? Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Xi'an Julie Wang about her book, Beautiful Country, and about uh, immigration and the journey that immigrants travel to not just come to our country, but to become part of our nation. We're going to get to you on the phones and on social. Jesus in Detroit, Mark in Redford Township, who will be up next. If you want to join them on the phones, we absolutely want to hear from more of you about your journey to America and what that was like, the successes, the struggles. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we could include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Xi'an Julie Wong. She's an attorney and an author of a memoir titled Beautiful Country. It is about her journey from China to the United States and her journey once she gets here uh, from uh, an impoverished background in Brooklyn to being a successful uh, attorney and author. We're talking about immigration today and not from a policy perspective, the way we normally discuss it on the show, but from the perspective of an immigrant herself, uh, somebody who's had this experience um, and can share what it's like. We want to hear from other folks about their journeys to this country. 
journeys that were maybe uh, full of success or uh, beset by struggles. Um, we also would love to hear if you are a descendant of someone who came to this country. Uh, did you hear these stories from your parents, from your grandparents about what it was like to pick up from where they were and to come to try to be Americans. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to include you in the conversation that way. Before we go to our callers, uh, she and Julie, I want to I talk about what ultimately happens uh, to your family. You end up uh, in Canada, uh, and, and tell us what happens after that. Yes, um, I think my greatest privilege was that I was born to educated parents and given my parents' desperation, they eventually figured out a way to get us to legal status. And it became clear to them that the the fastest way to do so was to leave the country and find um, home somewhere else. Once we arrived in Canada, it was like that the switch had been unflipped. Right. By virtue of crossing this border, the central problems of our lives disappeared mm. and uh, we no longer had to hide. We had access to dental care, to health care. My parents could get fully fledged jobs without worried, being worried about documentation. And, you know, immediately our response was, OK, we're fine now. Right. We're lucky. We're the lucky ones. We made it out. We're fine. And it would take me much, much longer to understand the depths of the psychological pain that had been seared into all three of us for so many decades after that. Um, actually, until my book came out, my parents and I never talked about being undocumented. We never talked about those years. And yet even um, for years into our lives in Canada, I was never able to eat a full meal without feeling like I had to throw up immediately because my stomach had shrank to such a size that it could not accommodate a normal amount of food. And as I was pushing through these waves of nausea after lunch at school or after dinner, I would just tell myself, I'm fine. You know, I'm lucky I'm out. I'm, this is, this is normal. And the fact that my body would take years to recover, um, suggested all the more that my, my heart, my mind would take that much more time and, and attention to come back from an existence that really no human should be in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, we're going to start with Jesus today in Detroit. Jesus, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Really appreciate you having me on. Um, I heard your comment earlier about about sharing stories of joy as well and success. And I know that, you know, as an immigrant myself, I was born in Mexico and raised in southwest Detroit. Uh, stories of immigrants are usually, are like generally tragic, unfortunately. But there are stories of joy and success, and I thought I'd share mine. Um, you know, I came to the city as a kid with my mom. She was undocumented, came with my brother and sister, and Despite her not having, uh, despite her not having a husband, despite her having three kids, you know, English and you know, citizenship, she became a successful business owner, and to this day, her travel agency is still thriving in Southwest mm. Detroit, and we're all doing well. And um, you know, I think there's a resilience and a grit about mm. being a Detroiter, and a resilience and a grit about being an immigrant. And when you're a Detroiter and an immigrant, that resilience and that grit is is just unbreakable. So I'm I'm happy to to share that story of 
the joy and the success um, despite all the hardship. Yeah, Jesus, that's a wonderful story, and and I'm really glad you called and and shared it because, as you point out, a, a lot of times the stories aren't about joy and and success. And of course, in Southwest, uh, which is uh, one of the one of the places where we have lots of immigrants from Mexico and and other Latin American countries there are of course lots of stories of struggle with uh, with being undocumented and and trying to to establish yourselves here so uh, I'm really glad you shared that uh, she and Julie um, that's the flip side of of the immigration uh, story is that there are some people who 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 can figure it out without as much hardship as your parents had. Um, there's something that is uh, unequal and imbalanced about that. I feel, uh, you know, the, the the reason that one family is able to come to this country and another is not as often kind of murky. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I would say that the ability to endure those struggles, I would argue that most immigrant families face some version of of hardship. Um, actually provides a source of that grit, right? Um, Looking back, whenever I had encountered any difficulty as an adult, I would look back and say, well, I survived those years. There's nothing I can't do. And my father chose his life for me. And so why not do this and that and really put my mind to it? That source of determination, that fire in our belly comes from having seen early on what our parents underwent. But yes, I would say there is an inequity in how immigrants um, fare here, in part because of where they land when they first arrive, their networks and community, the community of immigrants around them is crucial. The access to public resources, the safety that one feels in seeking out public resources, right? Those are issues that our politicians and community leaders should be looking at closely because there should not be such a disparity, right? Our country should not be what is known as the beautiful country across the world in one part, but um, scarcely beautiful elsewhere. Yeah. So, so I want to go back to your parents and their decision to come here. Um, they were both professionals. Uh, they were both academics. Um, what was it that prevented them from being able to to get permanent residency here, and then? And then become citizens, as you say. They you, you come on visas, and those visas uh, expire. What was the reason that they were unable to translate those into into residency? Uh, my parents did not know anybody here. I think that was the number one barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was an, a natural inhibitor to being honest with their networks. Right, you can't just call some random person up and say, hey, I'm I'm facing my visa expiration or hey, I'm undocumented. What do I do? Because that entails trust. That entails um, putting your family safety and uh, uh, on the line. And um, so what I didn't know as a child, but I, would, I subsequently learned was that my parents did seek out various lawyers around Chinatown, gave them a lot of money, a lot of money to us, at least at the time. Um, and they would return to these law offices, so-called, um, to find that those lawyers had disappeared and taken the money. And this is a scam and ruse that uh, has been happening for the entire time that I've been in this country and continues to happen today. I actually litigated against a lawyer a few years ago who ended up being disbarred for repeatedly targeting immigrants and new immigrants in particular for the scam. Um, and if you think about who is the most vulnerable 
what is the population that is the easiest to target? But from the perspective of a lawyer and from with the authority of the law, undocumented immigrants and new immigrants are, I would think, at the very top of that. And from there, that experience, I think my parents stopped trusting, trusting, stopped trusting lawyers, stopped trusting the system. They had no idea, even though there were legal options at that time. They thought, oh, these lawyers are just out for our money and not to actually assist us. And so again, I say, I mean, it was extremely fortunate for us that my mother was able to eventually make a friend who said, here, there's this other route that's still available to you and talk to my lawyer who I do trust. And that is the way I think that most immigrant families find their way is to have that one person, that one friend, that contact who does believe in their future and who is willing to share that kind of information, um, that that impermeability of access to legal resources and legal knowledge is, I believe, at the foundation of injustice and inequality in our country. And that's why I, I became a lawyer and my father actually became an immigration lawyer and practices hmm. now in Chinatown in the very um, location where <laughs> he lost a lot of money to various lawyers. Wow. Wow. Uh, again, Jesus, really appreciate uh, your story and uh, your call to share it. Uh, let's go next to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I really applaud this um, conversation and your guests you're having uh, this morning because it, it ties into my own research on um, labor and immigration studies. Um, I'm a labor and immigration historian, and if you think about the immigrants' experience, it's to be thought of as a, a contour of life study, and it's to be respected in light of that, so that you know their life course comes to fruition and they're able to uh, be successful, mm-hmm. uh, as your guest was. And it's very unfortunate that her parents um, were not as successful, successful because of obstacles, but this idea of respecting it as a contour, <clears throat> excuse me, this idea of respecting it as a contour of life studies is essential. And I really applaud the guests that you have because you put a face to these issues that you talked about in the past. Yeah, yeah. Mark, I, I really appreciate uh, your perspective as uh, a labor historian and, and somebody who's really thought about uh, immigration and what it does. Uh, uh, she and Julie, I wonder if you can talk about the, I guess, the transformation about how you feel uh, about being an immigrant, how you feel about being American, uh, how you feel about the things that your family had to go through to get to the place that it is now. I I, I imagine that it looks a little different perhaps than it did when you were seven and came here, Um, but I guess I'm wondering how different. Yeah, I when I arrived, I really bought into this idea of the American dream, the idea that is uh, sold to many of us and the idea that my father harbored. Um, growing up in the dissident household, he would read by candlelight the works of Mark Twain and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And growing up, he would imagine this other world, right, called America, where anything was possible and anyone could achieve anything. And I held on to this dream when we had no choice but to move to Canada. There was this deep anger inside me of how could you take my father's 
lifelong dream away from him. Mm. And I was determined, determined to fight my way back here and prove him right. And ironically, it wasn't until I had, you know, achieved the highest uh, privileges in this land, I would say, you know, I became a citizen in 2016, 22 years after I first moved here. I'd been a lawyer for many years at that time. I'd gone to a top law school. I'd been practicing at a very high level, clerked for a very high judge. It wasn't until I stepped into that realm of American life that this duality of the versions of myself, right? One, this child who kind of scampered like a rat and cockroach whenever she saw anyone in a police or firefighter uniform, even a sanitation worker, lest she be detected and deported. And this woman who went to these fancy offices and stood up in the courtroom and wore expensive suits, how, how is it possible that these two people both exist inside me? And why was that necessary? Um, I started really examining and deconstructing this version of the American dream, which necessarily suggests that immigrants come to this country at the bottom, at the bottom of the economic totem pole, at the social totem pole, and climb their way up against the systemic barriers. And what that leaves certainly me with, but a lot of the fellow immigrants that I've been privileged to meet and know is a sense of survivor's guilt, right? Because you're acutely aware of the communities and the people who maybe didn't make it as far as you, who are still daily struggling with hunger and with fear and with invisibility. And what do you do with that? What do you as one individual do with that? Um, On top of that, you're carrying the traumas of you yourself kind of making it through this world without that network, without necessarily a community of people who understand what you went through. When I went to Yale Law School, I realized I was just in a different world. And yeah, there were actually several students who had gone through what I had gone through, but by, by and large, there were students who had no idea what it was like to live that kind of life. There were mm-hmm. professors who had zero idea. And what does that leave you, right? with? that sense of shame that that you grew up with at the center of your being. Where do you put that? How do you process it? And I'm fortunate because I got to a place of privilege where I could afford therapists. I could go into therapy several days a week. I could start to process and unpack everything that my, my parents and I carried um, and, and find a way to not just survive and endure and make it day to day, which I think a lot of our immigrant parents, a lot of that last generation are still in the survival mode and find a way to thrive and make meaning of, of those experiences, of channeling those experiences into what I do every day to try to contribute to some sense of growing equality for immigrants, but that's not everyone's story, right? And I have to be aware of that, that that there are people who I grow up with who don't get to live this life. And what do I do about that? I I get to find the answer. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, she and Julie Wong about her book, Beautiful Country. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 
313-577-1019 is the number here. Give us a call. Tell us about your story of coming to America. What was it like? Was it a successful story? Was it a story of struggle? Maybe there were stories of tragedy. Did you hear stories like that from your parents or your grandparents who came to America? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. And we can work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Xian Julie Wong. Uh, she's a civil rights litigator and author of Beautiful Country, a memoir about her life as an undocumented immigrant. Uh, we're talking about immigration with her, uh, her story, but also the stories that uh, that we share here, especially in Southeast Michigan, a place that attracts immigrants from all over the globe. Uh, we want to hear about yours. Uh, call and tell us about your family's story, your family's journey to this country. Uh, did it happen when you were a child? Uh, did it happen before you were born and you just heard about uh, how your family came to this country? Um, give us a sense of what the challenges were to coming to this country or adapting to being here once you were here. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the uh, we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, she and Julie, I, I also want to talk just a little about immigration policy with you and the things that uh, that you see in your work as a litigator um, that, that kind of cry out for for change. As I said before, we talk about immigration a lot on, on our show and about immigration reform and the need to really fundamentally change the way we think about this. Uh, but, but you see it every day and uh, you experience uh, other people's journeys and the difficulties every day. So, so give me a sense of where you think uh, we can be doing better with uh, with immigration policy, making it easier for people who just want to come here to become Americans, uh, able to do so. Yeah, I think number one is um, visibility and consideration of immigrants and undocumented immigrants in our general policy. So uh, when COVID struck and many relief packages were offered, noticeable to me and many people in the immigrant community was that very few were open to immigrants, whether documented or not. Mm. And this is a consideration, I think, that's just invisible in a lot of our discussions, that where we talk about food insecurity, housing insecurity, uh, they need to supplement income, they need to make sure that children who can't make it to school are still receiving the meals they need, the education they need, the, the software, the hardware that they need to attend school remotely. 
um, there's a big gap in our understanding of what it means to live as an immigrant, as a new immigrant, or as an undocumented immigrant. Those people are the most loath to come forward and say, hey, I need some more free meals. Hey, my child is hungry. My child is struggling, right? Their, their day-to-day goal, as I mentioned, was to stay hidden. And so it is incumbent on us as allies as people who are advocates to consider that and make sure that um, all of these packages incorporate some form of relief for that population who are often frontline workers, who often do not secure the um, support they need. They pay taxes and they don't receive the benefits of our system. Um, and so later on, as, as advocates and activists began to push, there did um, become available uh, a package um, that was for which undocumented and documented immigrants were eligible. But that took a lot of time, that took a lot of loud voices and a lot of loud allies, of which I, I believe that um, we are in good company today among your listeners to fight for that change. Secondly, I think there has to be, there has to be some permanent path to citizenship mm. for the people who are stuck here, who have been undocumented here for decades who are Americans who who maybe came here at age two or who came here, you know, at age 20 and have been contributing actively to American life, to making our country a better and more fruitful place for everyone for many decades. Those people deserve recognition under the law. They deserve an American green card or passport. And the the DACA program, while, while you know, well-meaning, and um, while it does offer some temporary relief, it does not cover all of those individuals, nor does it offer any sort of permanent safety. And particularly with how divided our country is right now, the constant back and forth of courts overruling DACA, of a new president coming on and striking down DACA through executive action, that just contributes to the sense of instability, of insecurity and limbo that undocumented immigrants are already living under. It does not provide any certainty or stability that any human being would need to feel safe, both psychologically and physically. And so I would push everyone who is listening right now to call their representatives and follow up on the Biden administration's promise of building that permanent pathway because these are productive and contributing members of American society. They're not here to steal our jobs. If anything, they're taking the jobs that no one else wants. They're paying taxes and not getting any returns. And they are your neighbors. They are all around you, whether you know it or not. They're your cashier. They're your laundry worker. They're, they're, they might be a doctor or a lawyer kind of hiding in your midst. And um, they, they deserve that recognition of they, too, are American. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the last three presidents have promised to find a way to get the comprehensive um, uh, immigration reform that uh, that we we have needed for such a long time and no one has been really successful at it of course uh, Donald Trump is something of an outlier in that in that group because he wanted to, to, to push immigration in a really different direction um, but but we just have not been able to to get to to the things that that these families need, uh, I, I, I want to end with you talking about how you talk to your family today about your story and and what your family makes of the transition from China 
to the United States. Uh, it's been a long time that, that, that you've now been here. How, how do they think of the choices that were made and, and the things that have happened since you got here? I asked my dad this recently, whether he regretted anything. And he said, he, if he had to do it a hundred times over, he would come back to America a hundred times over. He is the biggest patriot I know. To his mind, America can do no wrong. And this was even through, you know, COVID, the wave of anti-Asian hate and attacks that we endured in, in New York City in particular. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, America's just going through a tough time right now, but it will turn around. America at bottom is good and it will do better and it will continue to do better. His dream, I think, of, of seeing me create for myself what I want out of my life has in many ways come into fruition. But that was not... Um, you know, that was not without the struggle and hard work. And now now we look back on on those years and we just say how lucky and fortunate we were to have made it out, to have that perspective, to have found our way to a place of safety. And how does our duty to pay it forward to the new immigrants who are arriving every day? And that, um, we think, is, is the American dream of this interconnectedness of this recognition of humanity among all of us, the sense of community and strength. And that's all built really on a profound love of this country and what this love, what this country could be and has yet to become. I think in, in our connection and our work in the community, that's where America can really become beautiful. And that's what we endeavor to do every day. Well, what about your family back in China? You talked about as a child being really anxious about the distance that you had from them and whether whether you would ever see them again at, at certain points. Um, what, 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 how has that story resolved itself? It's still difficult. I mean, we go back as often as we can, although with the pandemic, it's been extraordinarily difficult. And by virtue of being immigrant, um, I think it feels like yourself is split into two. There's a version of me that I am in China with my family and, and old friends. And there's a version of me here in America. And they, they say that you're more logical in your second language. I would say I'm probably more logical and contained in my second country. Mm. Because when I go back home to my country of birth, I feel this immense vulnerability that's kind of locked up in that country, this bittersweet joy and sadness of the childhood that could have been the memories of lunar new years that could have been created and that we never got to share all the years that we lost and unfortunately that is just part and parcel of being an immigrant you lose some of those profound central memories that could have been integral to who you are and and to your childhood and the way you formed but um, in exchange, we, we received a whole lot of, of freedom and independence and the self-determination that I think I would not have had, had access to had we stayed. And um, that is a trade-off I think that many, if not all, immigrant families make. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the book is Beautiful Country, and the author is Xian Julie Wong. Xian Julie, it was really wonderful to have you here to talk about uh, your family's journey, your journey, and, of course, uh, this new book. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all you do. Take care. 
Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Have a great weekend and come back Monday when we're going to talk with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson about election safety and her re-election campaign for Secretary of State just a day before the November 8th midterm elections. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.